Has anyone here ever eaten Turkish delight? Show of hands, who's had it? Turkish delight? Lots in the choir. This is a trend from last service. Interesting. I asked this question at the 7.30 and they all were like, <sighs> okay. Of those who have tried Turkish delight, who here likes it? Who thinks it's gross? I'm in the gross category. We can fight about that later if you feel strongly about that. Um, I did not grow up eating Turkish Delight. If you don't know what it is, it's a kind of candy. Um, I learned about its existence, like most American children did, uh, when I was in the fifth grade, and my English class was reading the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And it's interesting, there's this one scene in the story that is very memorable, involving Turkish Delight. It's between the White Witch and this little boy, Edmund. And in the scene, the white witch doesn't seem all that scary. Uh, she gets scary later on, but in this scene, she's kind of like flattering and schmoozy and crafty. And it, it's snowing and it's cold and she is riding by on her sleigh and she sees Edmund there by himself and she stops the sleigh and invites him to come up and come hang out, come cuddle up under some warm blankets, and oh, you, you look like you could use a warm drink. Here, here's a goblet of hot chocolate. She asks him if he would like a snack, and he says, well, I would like some Turkish delight, and poof, she makes some appear. And it's this beautiful box of candy, whole big box. He opens it up and takes a bite, and he's never tasted Turkish delight like this before. It is so good that he just wolfs it all down. And while they are sitting there eating and talking, he mentions to the White Witch that he has a brother and two sisters. And um, she learns of this, and she's feeling kind of jealous and worried about the presence of these boys and girls in her land and, and says to Edmund, well, if you bring me your family, I will give you all the Turkish delight that you could ever eat. And he's like, yes, absolutely. Let me add that. I must have more of that magical Turkish delight. And you can see him all throughout the rest of the book how he is so captured by his own temptation. He's always going to give in to it, even to the point of giving up everything that matters to him. Today is the first Sunday of Lent. In case you didn't realize from our figure eight prayer this morning, today's the first Sunday of Lent. So a lot of us are thinking about fasting, thinking about giving something up for the season. Um, which means that we all have temptation on the brain. And temptation is tricky to nail down. What tempts one person does not tempt somebody else. One person's Turkish delight will be another person's donut, or cake square, or cocktail, or cigarette, or shopping spree. And if it really tempts you, if it won't leave you alone, sometimes that's because it's not the thing itself that really tempts you. It represents something deeper. It's about meeting some other sort of deep need in you, something that you feel like you just can't live without. For example, 
Do you ever wonder if Eve really liked the taste of that fruit, which I was told after the nine o'clock, I said apple, it's technically not apple. Um, it's, some people say it's a pomegranate. Uh, but do you think Eve actually really liked the taste of that fruit? Or was it the getting it that she wanted more? Wasn't it what that apple or pomegranate represented that was tempting? The serpent told her that God was withholding that fruit from her, that that apple would actually give her the same wisdom as God, that she would be like God if she ate it. Your eyes, your eyes will be opened, the serpent said to her. And all of a sudden, Eve was like, well, yes, absolutely, I have to have that. Because what she didn't know about herself is that what she wanted more than anything was to be in control, was to be like God, to know good and evil, to have power, to have control. It was what she never knew that she needed. It was like this hidden, deepest desire in her. Edmund's deepest desire was to have that same kind of power, except in his case, he wanted power over his siblings. Edmund's not a very likable guy. Don't know if you remember this from the story. He's kind of cranky, and he's critical, and he constantly throws people under the bus. He sells out his sister at one point. Um, and it's coming from a place of believing that he is special. He thinks he is smarter than everyone else, way smarter than his brother and sisters. He doesn't think that they are all that great. And while he was hooked to begin with by the white witch because she had some delicious candy, she also tells him, I'm going to make you into a king. And you are going to have power over anybody that has ever made you feel bad. You would get to boss around everyone that has ever bossed you around. Sounds pretty good, right? I think we have all had that temptation at some point in our lives. We all have been hooked at some point, sometime, by the illusion of power and control. You can try and ignore it. You can try to pretend like it hasn't caught you, but, oh my goodness, temptation is patient. Temptation will wait for you. Temptation will circle back around to the places in your heart where you feel weak and just get at that place of what you most desire in the world. What tempts you with power and control it's really about not, not feeling that sense of powerlessness, especially not feeling alone, feeling like you are left alone to deal with scary things by yourself. Jesus struggled with temptation too. He had just been baptized and he goes to the desert and he has been fasting for a very long time and the devil approaches him and in that weak state, suggests to him all the things that he could do to make himself feel better, to give himself some relief from fasting. He could turn stones into bread. He could be saved by angels. And he could even be in charge of all the kingdoms of the world. At each time, each temptation, Jesus refuses to take the bait. The devil's trying to hook him into believing the lies that each of these temptations 
represented. There's a great book by Henry Nowen uh, called The Prodigal Son, and he says in the book that there are three lies that swirl around in everybody's head from time to time. Three lies. First, you are what you have. Second, you are what you do. And third, you are what other people say you are. Three lies. Three temptations. And all of us, all of us, pursue and believe these lies all the time. We fall into believing that our lives amount to merely the, the stuff we have and the things we produce and the people who surround us, which is extraordinary. We not only believe it, but we worship it. We align our lives and our hearts to reflect these lies. And that is exactly what is unfolding in this scene in the desert. The devil is trying to make Jesus believe these three lies about himself. First, you are what you do. Whether it's your, your job, your hobby, your passion in life, whatever it is, whatever you produce in the world is who you are. So, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. Show us what you can make. Impress us with what you can do. Jesus refuses. So he tries again with the next lie. You are what people say you are. You are your community. You are your circle of friends and all the awesome stuff they say about you. You are your affirmations. So Jesus, throw yourself off the top of the temple so that your community can affirm you. Prove how important you are because the scriptures say that the angels are going to just snap to it and jump up and save you. Again, Jesus refuses. So he tries again with the third lie. You are what you have. Your worth is in your stuff, your money, your possessions. You are what you have. So then check out all these kingdoms of the world. Look at all their splendor. This you can have for yourself if you just fall down and worship the devil. Jesus shuts it all down. This scene is so dramatic because it's a little bit extreme. You get a picture in your head of like Jesus and the devil going head to head and proving that once for all Jesus is without sin. And there's this wonderful sense when you read this story of Jesus' triumph. And think about where he comes from in the Bible, like how many other people have come before him, leaders that have tried and failed. People who struggled in the wilderness, Moses, Joshua, Saul, David, all these people who came along and they were supposed to be godlike. They were supposed to have um, everything that they could do to be in charge and they failed. And Jesus doesn't. Jesus rises above every single challenge that the devil has to bring. Jesus shows us yet again that he is God. But on another level, this story is also about us. This scene is an invitation to us. 
that we can either choose to participate in the kingdoms of the world or the kingdom of God. We can look at our lives with the, a great sense of fear, a great sense of scarcity, a lot of worry and, and gripping our fingers around the things that we think are going to bring us security and esteem and even control. And that, that is real. That is a real temptation. But it is a path that is self-centered and ultimately a destructive path. Alternatively, we can choose God's kingdom. We can see ourselves as God's children, whose future is not centered in this world, but in relationship with him. We can see ourselves as beloved, no matter what we do or the stuff we have or who we have in our bubble. We can see ourselves as beloved, as God's, as a part of God's journey as a part of God's path, the way of salvation, the way of love. Let's be fair. We all have a little bit of Edmund in us. All of us do. We have all thought from time to time that our brothers and sisters are idiots. We have all tried to go off on our own pretending like we can just burn bridges, break relationships without consequences. We have all been seduced by the taste of something so sweet that you just cannot forget it, even though you know it is bad for you. We're all a little bit like Edmund. But not all was lost for him. Even though he strikes out on his own and he chose to pursue this completely selfish appetite for Turkish delight, he was still forgiven. There's this wonderful scene at the end of the book where he's rescued from the white witch and he's returned to his family. And Aslan, the lion, says to them, here is your brother. And there is no need to talk about anything that's happened in the past. He's just forgiven. He's loved. Even when he was horrible, even when he betrayed his own family, Edmund was given a way forward. So are we. God knows every single one of our appetites. God knows what tempts us. Because God knows what the deepest desires of our hearts are. And God answers them. Not by satisfying the temptation, but by satisfying us with a new identity, with a new place in his kingdom. We don't have to believe the lies that temptation tells. We don't have to believe that our only worth is in what we have or what we produce or what other people say we are. And even if we do, even if we find ourselves in a place where that is very tempting and we fall into temptation and sin, guess what? We get to try again. We always are being brought back home again. For every time that we start believing temptation's lies, God always changes the narrative. God has given us this incredible freedom 
to turn from temptation and to live, and to live abundantly. Because we have a new way of being in the world that has absolutely nothing to do with how impressive we are or how good we look or even, heaven help us, how powerful and in control we strive to be. God's kingdom reigns. Not the devil's, not ours, not our egos, not our appetites, not our temptations. God's kingdom reigns. Amen.